Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. I know a few people are still getting their food, but um, we need to get started so that we give our guests plenty of time to talk. I'm John Haig and I co-direct the Center for Business, the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government with Larry Summers. Um, we are extremely fortunate today uh, to have Stu Eisenstadt with us. And normally I would give an introduction and a little bit of background, but um, my co-director, Larry, uh, unfortunately couldn't be here today. He is in Europe, uh, and he was very disappointed that he couldn't be here, but he did record an introduction, and given his long history with with, uh, uh, with Stu Eisenstadt, I thought it would be more appropriate for him to give you some of the details uh, of their relationship and the background and introduce Stu. The one thing I do want to emphasize, though, um, is uh, Stu has a new book. Um, and if you haven't put your name in the, the, the bin up here, you can get, you can, we'll do a lottery at the end, President Carter, uh, the White House years. Um, he did do, if you, if you missed it, um, he did do a, a book uh, <coughs> signing at the Coop last night, and if you want to get a signed copy of the book, you should feel free to head up to the head up to the free free copy of the book. Head up to the Coop, and, and they will uh, have plenty for you. So, with that, um, Larry Summers. I often regret having to miss a CBG event because of an out of town event. None more than Stu Eisenstadt's uh, business. I've known Stu for more than 30 years since we met during my time on working with uh, Governor Dukakis during his uh, presidential campaign. Stu has always been an inspiration uh, to me. He has had a remarkable career as President Carter's key domestic uh, aide as President Carter's trusted advisor on a very wide range of issues. As the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, the Under Secretary of Commerce and State for Economic Policy uh, Issues, and to my very great good fortune, as the Deputy Secretary of uh, Treasury. It says something about Stu that when the Kyoto talks were going to take place on global climate change, the first major global break, there needed to be one person who would be the U.S. negotiator. That person needed to have the capacity to master a brief nearly in detail. The patience to engage with the parochial concerns of more than a hundred other uh, nations, the calmness to keep cool in a politically charged uh, environment, and the steadiness and trustworthiness to earn the confidence of the President of the United States 
contribute to his quality. I benefited every day when I was Treasury Secretary from having Stu as my deputy. His advice was wise. His administration and management of key issues was always spot on. And during that period, he enabled the Treasury Department to have a role in what was for him uh, and for America a matter of great importance, the resolution of Holocaust-related financial uh, issues. And Stu did a splendid job that made us all so proud in closing that very sad chapter in human history. Many people leave governments and write books telling uh, their story. A very few, I think of Dean Acheson, I think of Henry Kissinger, wait some protracted interval after leaving government and then write their story in a way that serves not voyeuristic desire to see inside an administration, but rather deepening our understanding of history and the processes that shape it. Stu's book on Carter and the Carter administration is such a work. No one will write about or ponder the Carter administration or the United States in the late 1970s without grappling with all that Stu points up in this very important uh, book. You are fortunate in the next hour to have had the privilege I have had many times in the past listening to and learning from Stuart Eisenstein. I want to thank Larry, obviously, by uh, long distance for that wonderful introduction. Uh, his uh, aide, Kelly Friendly, who has been so important in setting this up. Scott Leland, for your very hard work in doing so. Uh, John, your work here. And this is a very emotional uh, homecoming for me because of two things. The first is that I taught at the Kennedy School as an adjunct lecturer for nine years uh, between uh, administrations, Carter and Clinton, uh, and also because many of the points that I make in the book, many of the stories that I tell, come from case studies that I did for my course at the Kennedy School uh, on the Cuban Marielle crisis, the G7 bond summit, and many, many other uh, issues. Uh, these were wonderful years. Uh, John, you know uh, how great this place is. Uh, there are also a couple of other people I want to recognize. Steve Stark, uh, whose wife is on the faculty here, was present at the creation when uh, people were still saying Jimmy who. He was really the first policy advisor uh, and was a very important part of, uh, of this story. 
Dickie Cavanaugh and I have known each other for a very long time, uh, and uh, it's wonderful to see you here. I had the pleasure of working with uh, Jeff during the Clinton administration, Jeff Frankel. Uh, and there is a very special guest uh, who is not directly connected to the Kennedy School, but is very much a part of my life. Uh, Larry was good enough to mention my Holocaust negotiations, which uh, ended up in $8 billion of recoveries, uh, first with the Swiss banks. And the, the, the hero of that story uh, is here, Greta Beer, who is a Holocaust survivor. And it was she that first uh, elevated the issue of the perfidy of the Swiss banks and hiding Holocaust era accounts. We've been very close since, and it's very meaningful to have her uh, with, with me here and with her friends as well. Jimmy Carter's political idol was Harry Truman, and he placed on his Oval Office desk Truman's famous slogan, the buck stops here. Both presidents left office highly unpopular Truman is now remembered much more for his accomplishments than for his failures, and I hope that my book will have a similar impact on reassessing the Carter presidency, seeing him as something other than simply an admired former president. I posit that he was the most underappreciated and most accomplished one-term president in modern American history, Two recent surveys have shown that almost 70% of our legislation was passed by the Congress, just under the percent of the first president I served in the White House, Lyndon Johnson, the, the master of Congress. Carter honored the office. He honored its institutions, including the Justice Department and the FBI, and the press, even though he got very bad press oftentimes. He respected its role in democracy. Walter Mondale, as vice president, put it very succinctly, we told the truth, we obeyed the law, and we kept the peace. The rap on the Carter presidency is summarized by four I's, inflation, Iran, inexperience by the president and his so-called Georgia mafia, and inter-party warfare with the liberal wing of the party and ultimately with Ted Kennedy who challenged his nomination and split the party. I don't whitewash any of these problems. That's why the reviews have been uniformly positive. I don't whitewash his mistakes or mine. This is not a book that could be called if he had only listened to me. Um, and my deputy actually at the time has his name affixed to one of your uh, buildings, David Rubenstein, and he's the one that said, Stu, call it if you'd only listen to me. Uh, that's not the case. There were major problems in the administration, and in addition, and I will expand because of the nature of this audience here, with foreign policy problems that we have because of the split between the Secretary of State, Cy Vance, and the National Security Advisor, Spig Brzezinski. I was Carter's policy director throughout the campaign. When we won the election against Ford in 76, I was the only one that Carter asked to be at the CIA briefings uh, during the transition coming in. And after one of those briefings, led by a fellow named George H.W. Bush, who was then the CIA director, 
he took me to the side of the building. He said, Stu, I want to appoint uh, Vance, the Secretary of State, and Zviga's National Security Advisor. What do you think? And I said, Mr. President, I worked with both of them during the campaign. Either one would be great, but not together. They would be a combustible mix because they have polar opposite views on how to deal with the Soviet Union, which is going to be one of your major challenges. Vance is a diplomat and a dove. Zviga is a hawk. He said, I can handle it. I like different opinions. You'll see when you read my book that it caused a certain dissonance in our foreign policy. So I don't whitewash these problems, but they have obscured the successes that I saw at his right hand. And so I wanted to write this book so that we got a complete view of the Carter presidency, the mistakes and failures, but also the lasting accomplishments and achievements, many of which were only recognized in years after he left office, and I wanted to do so while there were still living eyewitnesses, while he was still alive, and before history's verdict was indelibly sealed that Carter was a failed president. So let's look first at the uh, reason why and how I wrote this book. I had been an inveterate note-taker since college and Harvard Law School, and brought that into the White House. I took 5,000 plus pages of verbatim notes of every meeting, every phone call, everything I observed. And then I augmented that with over 350 interviews, five with Carter alone. And I wasn't selective. I took opponents and supporters, Republicans and Democrats, so I could get a complete view of the presidency. But let me take you back to an era and looking at the audience, some of you probably weren't even born at this time, during the 1970s in which we governed. It was an era of epic change. The post-World War II consensus had begun to break down because of the war in Vietnam, our first loss, urban violence, and Jeff will know, Jeff Frankel, uh, a disease that economists had to give a new name, slow growth and high inflation at the same time called stagflation. Very innovative. It was also a decade in which a whole set of new movements, which we take for granted today, had just sprouted. The environmental movement, the consumer movement, the black power movement, the women's rights movement, and after Roe v. Wade in 1973, the right to life movement. It was a decade in which a new political force came on the scene, which is very much with us today, the conservative Christian evangelical movement, initially headed by Reverend Jerry Falwell, who called President Carter probably the most religious president we've ever had, not a real Baptist, and someone who was harboring homosexuals on his staff. And in 1980, Ronald Reagan soundly defeated us for a variety of reasons, but in part by tethering that evangelical movement, just formed, with Richard Nixon's silent majority of dissatisfied blue-collar workers. And that's precisely the coalition that's at the base of Donald Trump's support to this day. The 1970s was also a time abroad of major changes. The Soviet Union was at the apex of its power and influence. Huge buildups in defense spending, air, sea, and ground, supporting Cuban proxy troops to stir up revolutions in the Horn of Africa, 
and violating human rights by preventing people from leaving, particularly Soviet Jews. It was also a decade in which a Polish-born pope, came Pope John Paul II, and President Carter began together and simultaneously to give hope to the nascent democratic movements with their human rights emphasis behind what was called at the time the Iron Curtain. And it was a decade in which a new power began to rise, the People's Republic of China. More on that in a minute. And yes, it was also a decade in which we live with a revolution that is front page news virtually every day, the radical Islamic revolution, which was one of the seminal events during the Carter years. Again, more on that in a minute. On our domestic achievements, the energy security we enjoy today, the lack of dependence on OPEC oil, the fact that in two years we'll be the biggest energy producer in the world, rests solidly on the foundation that we laid through three major energy bills, ending price controls on natural gas and crude oil, incentivizing companies to produce more. We put conservation at the center of our energy policy with fuel efficiency standards, insulation requirements, and the like, and then inaugurated the new era of clean energy, wind, geothermal, and in particular solar. Carter even symbolically, as one of the photos in the book showed, put a solar panel on the White House to demonstrate that this was the future. Now 10% of all of our new electricity comes from solar power, and he hammered out the most difficult of those challenges after 18 months of struggle, which was deregulating natural gas, by something you would never see in today's polarized Washington in the war room, the map room of the White House, where FDR charted the course of World War II by having two conservative Republican senators and two liberal Democratic members of the House, Rangel and Corman, agree on a phased deregulation. Carter was also a great consumer champion, appointing people to regulate industries, the FTC, the FCC, and so forth, who were consumer advocates, many taken from Ralph Nader's, Nader's Raiders group, not as today appointing people who worked in industry or lobbied for industry to regulate the very industries uh, on which they were dependent. And he backed their appointments up with major legislation that ended regulations and freed up competition and prices in the entire transportation industry, bus, rail, trucks, and most particularly in important airlines. The JetBlues, the Southwest Airlines, would hardly exist today were it not for airline deregulation. We really democratized air travel. That might not seem such a great thing when you're sitting in the center seat of an economy class uh, plane, but it's the fact. And we didn't stop there. We began the deregulation of telecommunications, bringing in the new cable era. And for those of you who are aficionados of local craft beers, we ended the prohibition era regulation on local craft beers, so you can do a toast to Carter when you drink one. <laughs> Third, he was I believe the greatest environmental president since Theodore Roosevelt. We took on costly and environmentally damaging water projects and literally doubled the size of the national park system that TR created through the Alaska Lands Bill, 
over the fierce opposition of the Alaska delegation, which wanted all of Alaska open for oil and gas exploration. And in typical Carter sort of detail, he did it by taking out a giant map of Alaska, putting it on the rug of the Oval Office, having Senator Ted Stevens, the ranking Senate uh, Republican, uh, and showed him every nook and cranny, what would be in the park, what would be available for development. And Stevens told us afterward he was amazed that Carter knew more about the state than he did after 25 years. It's an enormous, enormous accomplishment. Fourth, the whole post-Watergate ethics legislation, which is more important than ever in ethically challenged Washington, began with Carter. He campaigned on the theme, I'll never lie to you, I want a government as good as its people. And this was not just rhetoric, we put it into action. The 1978 Ethics Act, which is still very much in force, required for the first time the disclosure of financial assets and potential conflicts of interest going into office, strict gift limits when you're in office, lobbying restrictions from the agencies and departments you were with after office. We created the Office of Special Counsel to investigate wrongdoing. That's where Mueller comes from. It's the iterations of that. The Office of Inspectors General, one in each agency to rule out fraud, waste, and abuse, still very much current. Merit selection of judges by federal panels, civil service reform, uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act to bar corporations from obtaining foreign contracts through bribes. All of this and more was put in place by the Carter administration. Two anecdotes. First, on the gift limit, I unwillingly got caught up in it. There was a profile done of me in a business magazine saying that I had a great love for the one-cent little Tootsie Rolls that many of us uh, may remember from our young days. I think they still sell them. And so I got a mammoth box of Tootsie Rolls from the Tootsie Roll Company, thanking me for mentioning that, only to find out from the legal counsel's office he said, damned if I'm going to count every one of these, but I think it may be worth more than $25, and you got to return it. So I did with a letter saying, you know, we have new high moral post-Watergate standards. Not the end of the story, because there was a profile in another business magazine of the Tootsie Roll Company, and the CEO said, Eisenstadt tried to have it both ways. He sent us this high and mighty letter about their new morals. We opened the box. It was empty. And, <laughs> I'm still trying to find a Secret Service agent who stole my Tootsie Roll. <laughs> More seriously, the target of the first special counsel that we created was none other than Carter's own chief of staff, Ham Jordan, who was falsely accused by none other than Roy Cohn, who was the infamous hatchet man of Senator Joe McCarthy, and by the way, Donald J. Trump's first political mentor, he represented the owners of a place called Studio 54 in New York, and as a way of trying to plea bargain, he got them to allege that Ham, who was in Studio 54, was snorting cocaine. A million dollars later of legal fees out of his pocket, 24 to 0, the grand jury said no. But that's not the point. The point is, not once during that investigation, which occurred at an incredibly important time when we were organizing for the re-election campaign, did Carter ever demean the investigation, ever call it a witch hunt, ever call it political? We let the rule of law play out, and I'll let you draw the comparisons, if you will, to what's happening today. 
Here also was a southern president from the very deep south who appointed more women, more African Americans and Hispanics to senior positions and judgeships than all 38 presidents before him put together. If anybody has seen the RBG documentary, uh, you'll see in my book, she says, I would never be on the Supreme Court had Carter not appointed me to the Court of Appeals and opened up judgeships to women and minorities. We supported affirmative action. I won't tell you about the Harvard case now and what the position is being taken. Minority set-asides. We saved New York City from bankruptcy, created the Department of Education, Department of Energy, health care reform, and many, many other things. We also created out of a constitutional afterthought, the modern vice presidency, which had been a position of derision. And after the election in 76, Mondale sent 10 requests to Carter to become, for the first time, a real partner. Things like access to classified documents, access to any meeting that he could drop in on, and one-on-one -on -one meetings in the Oval Office each week. Carter checked each one, did each one, and then even added another that hadn't been asked for. He moved it from the executive office building across the alleyway from the West Wing into the West Wing, right down from the Oval Office, and like in real estate location, location, and location is important, and it is in politics too, and it was symbolic of Mondale being a real partner. One of the surprises in the book is that Mondale, notwithstanding that, almost resigned. I'm the only Carter aide who knew about it. I disclose it for the first time here. That's another story. Inflation was our Achilles heel domestically, but also in many ways, ironically, Carter's most courageous domestic act. We inherited high inflation from Nixon and Ford, and it got worse in the Carter administration in no small part, but not exclusively, because of the Iranian Revolution and the cutoff of five million barrels of Iranian oil. And Carter called us in in July of 79, as we were beginning to look forward to a re-election campaign, and said, I have tried everything to curb inflation. Two anti-inflation czars, five anti-inflation speeches, voluntary wage and price uh, guidelines with sanctions for companies doing business with the government, budget cuts which have alienated the liberal wing, nothing's worked. I don't want my legacy to be double-digit inflation, even if it means my re-election, which it did. I'm going to appoint Paul Volcker to be the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And he knew farewell because Volcker told him, and I mentioned it in a, in a section in the book, exactly what Volcker was going to do. He told him very precisely, if you appoint me, I'm going to tighten the money supply, interest rates are going to go up, unemployment is going to go up, and I'm going to squeeze inflation out of the system the painful and hard way. And it worked, but not in time to help Carter's re-election. First year, year and a half of the Reagan administration, inflation dropped dramatically, and it's been low ever since. It's emblematic in many ways of so many of the things that we did that only blossomed after we left office. <clears throat> On foreign policy, the accomplishments were equally important. 
September 17th, in just a few days, will be the 40th anniversary of the Camp David Accords, which I think are one of the singular diplomatic achievements for any president in American history. 13 agonizing days and nights. Carter brought Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel, together in a very high-risk venture with a very low prospect of success given the differences they had coming in. Through 20 separate drafts that he personally drafted, negotiated separately with Begin and Sadat and their aides because they were like two scorpions in a bottle. They met only once together the first of those 13 days and then added two personal touches. He drove them on the first Sunday of those 13 days to the Gettysburg battlefield to underscore that five wars between Egypt and Israel were enough. And Sadat, who was a general and a military man, started expounding on the battlefield, John, about Pickett's charge and the mistake that was made in what was one of the conclusive battles of Gettysburg. And Begin, not a general, but quite a scholar, suddenly broke out and verbatim read to the crowd the Gettysburg Address. It was a very emotional time. The last Sunday, the 13th day, we were close but not there, and Begin said, Mr. President, I cannot and will not make any more compromises. I want to get out of here. He called it a glorified concentration camp. I've got an LL plane waiting for me at Andrews Air Force Base. I want a car to leave. Carter, realizing this could cause a cataclysm in the Middle East. It would undercut Sadat's historic trip to Jerusalem, threaten perhaps his life, radicalize the region even more, as well as doom his own presidency, came up with another personal touch based on the fact that he went into the summit with intense preparation, pouring over CIA reports, talking to our ambassadors from the two countries, talking to outside experts like Kissinger and understanding their red lines. And he knew that Begin had a great love for his eight grandchildren. So he took eight photographs that had been taken at Camp David of himself, Begin and Sadat, personally autographed them, walked them over to Begin's cabin, handed to, to Begin, and then as Begin went through reading each of their names, he saw his lips quiver and his eyes tear up and he said, I'm putting my bags down. I'll make one last try. The rest is history. Forty years later, never one violation of that treaty, which is central to Israel's security and to our national interest as well. He was also the first president to put human rights, and I would say only president, to put human rights at the center of his foreign policy. It wasn't an absolute. We gave passes to some of the countries in the Gulf and, and frankly, to the Shah of Iran. But he applied it not because it was a sort of naive, dewy-eyed concept, but because we were competing with the hearts and minds of third countries against the Soviet Union. And he thought by applying the best elements of American principles to our foreign policy, it would be a shining example, and it was. We applied it to the right-wing dictators who were pro-American and anti-communist in Latin America, ended up with thousands of political prisoners released, gave the new democratic movement there, which flowered in the 80s, uh, a real 
wind behind their sails. We took a lot of lumps for doing it because they were anti-communist and, uh, and pro-American. And then we tied together to create a new era in U.S.-Latin American relations. What was our hardest Senate battle? The Panama Canal Treaty. The Panama Canal Treaty in which we would turn over control of the canal to Panama was wildly unpopular. Everyone assumed it was ours. What were we doing turning it over? Previous presidents had touched lightly on it but never grappled with it. We did. And two interesting stories in getting the two-thirds majority. The first, again, something you would not see today, is one of the real heroes was a man of very small physical stature, but a great man in the Senate, Howard Baker, who was the Republican minority leader in the Senate, who knew that his own presidential prospects of getting the Republican nomination would be ended if he supported the Canal Treaty, but he did because he thought it was the right thing to do. And an even more unlikely person was Senator Hayakawa, a conservative senator from California. In those days, there were conservative senators from California. Uh, and Hayakawa had coined the phrase, it's our canal, we stole it fair and square. <laughs> a most unlikely person to make up a two-thirds majority needed another constitution to ratify the treaty. Mondale, as senator, had worked with Hayakawa, knew he had a very high vanity level, even for a senator, and placed a call with President Carter and Hayakawa. And Carter said, what can I do to persuade you to support this treaty? And he said, don't tell me about the treaty. You know where I stand on it. But if you will see me once every two weeks to let me share my wisdom with you in the Oval Office, then I'll support it. And Carter said, only once every two weeks? I wouldn't want to limit you to that. Flattered, he supported the treaty, and Carter never saw him again. <laughs> China. Nixon and Kissinger get all the credit they deserve for the opening to China. It was a very courageous act, but they did not restore diplomatic relations with China because of the power of the Taiwan lobby in the Republican Party. We did. We took the lobby on, and another brutal battle, the Taiwan Relations Act, in which we severed diplomatic relations with them and established a special cultural and arms relationship with them, and we recognized the People's Republic of China. I was there for the first meeting in the cabinet room with Deng Xiaoping, all four foot 11 of them. I remember saying to myself, how does this guy control a big in Chinese? And we're in the cabinet room, and he says to the president, I appreciate what you've done to restore diplomatic relations, but what I really want, this may sound familiar today, is I want the lowest tariff levels on our Chinese products that you grant to your most favored trading countries. And he said, I know that there's a law, Jackson Vanek, which prevents that occurring for countries that limit immigration. That was aimed, he says, at the Soviet Union. It shouldn't apply to us. We have no limit on immigration. And he takes a little White House notepad, you remember, with the White House on it, and pushes it over to the president with a pencil, and he says, I want you to put on this piece of paper the number of Chinese you would like us to send you each year, a million, 10 million? And Carter, laughing, said, I'll tell you what, I'll take 10 million Chinese a year if you'll take 10,000 American journalists. <laughs> neither, neither had to fulfill that, but the fact is 
that we also started student exchanges with just a dozen or so. Now, what, 150,000 or so Chinese students studying here? We helped China integrate into the world uh, as we know it today. Carter also uh, very much valued our relationships with our allies. He was a very strong transatlantic friend, and we strengthened NATO and the alliance with a new defense policy for NATO. And in something that one of your professors, Bob Putnam, has written uh, about the Bonn Summit of 1977, he says that through the leadership of Carter and Helmut Schmidt, the host, that the Bonn Summit was the single most successful G Summit ever held. We agreed on uh, stimulation by Japan and Germany of their economies. We agreed to deregulate crude oil. And France agreed to allow the Tokyo round of trade negotiations to go forward. With all of these accomplishments, the coup de grace to the Carter presidency came clearly from Iran. And I am very unforgiving in describing the mistakes we made in Iran. I do believe in fairness that one of the mistakes was not that Carter was responsible for the Iranian Revolution and the exile uh, and escape of the Shah. Any more than Eisenhower could be blamed for the Cuban Revolution of Castro 90 miles from our shore or Obama be blamed for Mubarak's uh, departure with the so-called Arab Spring. But having said that, we made mammoth mistakes. It was, in my opinion, the single worst failure of American intelligence in U.S. history, uh, perhaps equaled by the lack of weapons of mass destruction, but maybe even exceeded by them. Here is an agency that in 1953 reinstalled the young Shaw on the throne, did a coup against a democratically elected prime minister, and then six presidents gave our most sophisticated arms to our paramount ally, the Shah of Iran, to support him. And yet, the CIA did not know that his domestic support rested on quicksand. He had lost it across the board, not just to the fundamentalists. They didn't know that for five years he was getting cancer treatments for an incurable form of cancer. They didn't appreciate the impact that the inflammatory cassettes that Ayatollah Khomeini was sending from exile outside of Paris back to Iran were having and stimulating what became the Iranian Revolution. Absolutely inexcusable. Carter then had a huge decision to make once the hostages were taken. What do I do and how do I get them out? And here, Ayatollah Khomeini outwitted the entire U.S. government for 444 humiliating days. This was one case in which I wish he had done what I said, and that is both myself and Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor, recommended immediate military action, not bombing Tehran, but mining the harbors off of a place called Karg Island, where 60% of Iran's oil exports came from, or blockading it, as Kennedy did in the Cuban blockade. And I believe that would have shown the kind of will that could have released the hostages. Instead, Carter met with the hostage families, 
said his first priority was getting them back healthy and unharmed. He did that, but at enormous cost to his own credibility and to the reputation of the United States. And then he made another mistake. He holed himself up in the White House, canceled foreign trips, canceled campaigning against Kennedy in the primaries to show that he was working singularly on getting the hostages released. But that had the effect of, in effect, making him a hostage in the White House. It gave more leverage to Khomeini, and it caused more press attention than would have otherwise occurred. The Nightline program of Ted Koppel started because of the hostage crisis and because of Carter's singular focus on it. The person who was sort of the dean of news reporting, Walter Cronkite from CBS, ended every broadcast, day 103, day 205, day 307 of the hostage crisis. It was unbelievably debilitating. And then the straw that broke the camel's back was the unsuccessful rescue effort, which for many was a metaphor for the failure of the administration. It literally never got off the ground. And the argument is made, which I, I think conclusively disprove in the book, that it was because Carter didn't allow enough helicopters. It's not true. We, Carter added two more helicopters to the minimum number the military wanted. We had eight instead of uh, just six. And I hope that's not mine. Um, so it was not a lack of helicopters. It was the fact that we had four different military services who had never practiced together, who had no joint command going in opposite directions. The Navy, for example, wouldn't put a carrier close to Desert One we had to take one from 500 miles away and have a helic helicopters fly 500 miles just to get the desert one. We created a joint command later. And when the rotor blade of one of those helicopters hit the C-130 cargo plane full of fuel to refuel the helicopters, eight servicemen died in flames, and those flames engulfed not only them, but the administration as well. Now, my book is not just about policy, it's about people. I think that the characters that come out of this book could come out of a Shakespearean play, the villains and the heroes, the uplifting and the tragic. Uh, time doesn't permit giving you anything like a good description of them. I'll only mention two. One is the president himself, and one is his mother, Miss Lillian. So Miss Lillian was a young registered nurse in Plains, Georgia, who did the unthinkable at the time of tending to black and white patients, getting paid in crops and chickens. At age 68, she goes into the Peace Corps in India, and it was her civil rights commitment that really infused Carter's. One humorous incident occurred during the 76 campaign. She was, of course, campaigning for him and vociferously defending him. And a New York reporter came down to interview Miss Lillian uh, to test this concept of Carter saying, I'll never lie to you. And she said, now, Miss Lillian, you know as his mother, certainly growing up he must have told lies. And she said, of course he did. He told many, many white lies. What do you mean, Miss Lillian, by a white lie? Well, you know, when I said how wonderful it was to have you down here from New York to Plains, that was a white lie. <laughs> 
I profile so many other people, Russell Long and Ted Kennedy and, and many others. But Carter, of course, is a central character of the book. And here's someone who comes from a gnat-infested hamlet of 500 people and makes it to the Oval Office as the 39th president. He did it by indefatigable campaigning, understanding the new rules of the caucuses and primaries, spending over 100 days in Iowa alone. But he also did it because, and this is key to any presidential election, understanding the pulse of the public at that time. And even for Democratic voters, it was not for a revival of the interrupted great society by eight years of Republicans. It was to restore trust and confidence and morality to the presidency and our institutions. And that was his theme. That was the broad appeal that he had. And we put together what was a very unstable coalition of conservative white Southerners, happy to have for the first time since Reconstruction, one of their own there, African Americans, labor, working class people, liberals. If the economy had been good, if there had been no hostage crisis, we could have kept that coalition together, but it was inherently unstable. Carter was in many ways, and Bill Clinton became the more successful one, the first new Democrat, moderate on fiscal issues, liberal on social issues like women's rights and civil rights, a liberal internationalist who believed in alliances and America's role in the world, and a free trader. And yes, he can be rightly criticized for excessive attention to detail. We'd send him a decision memo. He would want the appendices behind it. He would sometimes send our memos back with misspellings and grammatical mistakes. But as much as that was a disability, I've begun to think over the years that that's a better way of making decisions than making them by three by five cards or no cards at all with tweets. <laughs> he had a very odd view of politics. He was a moralist, and he had difficulty compromising, and he had difficulty doing what successful presidents have to do, which makes, looking, makes a half a loaf that you get back from Congress look like a victory rather than a defeat. I think Bill Clinton, who I served for eight years, was a master at this. But he had also had a very odd view of politics in general. He was a ferocious campaigner, as I've suggested. But he believed once you got into the Oval Office, you parked politics at the Oval Office door, and you did what you thought was the right thing to do, regardless of the political consequences. That was a great strength and a great weakness. The great strength was it allowed him to take on unpopular issues like Panama, like the Middle East, like energy, which were political losers. But it was a loss because, and a weakness, because a president's not just commander-in-chief, he's politician-in-chief. He has to nurture a base and keep them together behind him to support him in good times and bad, and this he did not do and couldn't do as well as he should have. He saw the Democratic Party, in a sense, as a sort of albatross around his neck. And he was abandoned by key elements for whom he thought he had done important things. For example, women's, liberal women's groups. He extended the term of the Equal Rights Amendment and appointed record numbers of women. Organized labor. We raised the minimum wage dramatically and supported labor law reform. The Jewish community, not just the Middle East peace process, but we broke the back of the Arab boycott. We championed Soviet jury and doubled the size of Soviet jury. And by the way, on the Soviet Union, we applied 
human rights, not just to the right-wing dictators, we applied it to the Soviet Union. We championed the right of free immigration and doubled the number of Soviet Jews and added hard power. Again, I give Reagan all the credit he deserves for the military buildup, but all the weapon systems, all the weapon systems, the MX mobile missile, intermediate nuclear forces, the cruise missile, the stealth bomber, all were green-lighted by Carter. And after Afghanistan, we took an incredibly tough position on sanctions, on grain embargo three weeks before the Iowa primaries, uh, by building up our military even more, and by the so-called Carter Doctrine. Why didn't we go to the Moscow Olympics? Because we remembered the U.S. went to the Berlin Olympics in 36, and in effect didn't protest Hitler's rising powers. So all of the major elements uh, of the coalition sort of fell apart. He was, in a sense, a centrist, too liberal for the conservatives, too conservative for the liberals. I take you in the book very deeply into the way the White House works. You'll be a fly on the wall to see what it's like to work under the intense pressures, the conflicting interest groups, the bad options from which you have to choose in the book. So in the book, I'm not nominating Jimmy Carter by any means to be a face on Mount Rushmore. But I am suggesting that he belongs in the foothills with many other presidents who made great contributions to a stronger and better America and a better world. And that's the principal argument of my book. Thank you, and I'll be glad to take your questions. So as we go to the question period, permit me to give you one story that was told by one of the people I profiled in a book, Russell Long, who was the colorful senator from Louisiana, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, through which much of our domestic legislation and tax legislation went, and whose father was the legendary Huey Long, uh, the governor of Louisiana during the 1920s and early 30s, actually challenged FDR for the Democratic nomination. And Russell told me the following story, that when he, Russell, was growing up as a young boy in the governor's mansion in, in Baton Rouge, Papa came home, the governor, uh, dead cold drunk, and with a very shaky hand, finally got the key in the keyhole to a line, opened the door, collapsed on the foyer while he, Russell, is holding on to Mama's apron strings, his mother, and the governor's wife looking sternly on the floor for an explanation as to how this state of affairs could have occurred to the governor of the great state of Louisiana. And Russell said, Papa, without pause, said, Mama, I've completed my prepared remarks, and I'll now take questions from the floor. <laughs> so, I assure you, I don't even have spike water here, but I, I'll be glad to take questions from the floor. Yes, please. Uh, your post-presidential, when your career since uh, Captain Carter's departure has also been incredibly uh, uh, productive, so thank you for your service since then. Um, you just mentioned Russell Long. Also, there are some other people, Kennedy, Reagan, who had great senses of humor. Did Carter have a sense of humor? Because I never noted it. Uh, neither did I. <laughs> no, he didn't. And, you know, uh, a sense of humor can go a long way. Uh, let me give you two examples. John Kennedy was fiercely blamed for appointing his brother as attorney general because Bobby had had no legal experience. And 
he was asked about this. And so he said, well, I thought it was important for Bobby to get some legal experience, and this is the way to do it. I mean, that was the end of the story. So Bob Strauss, who was our trade representative and a, and a great storyteller and uh, a great trade representative, uh, was really, had a sort of Texas swagger about him, and we had imposed, Carter had imposed this part of the sort of post-Watergate reform, that you had to fly on an American carrier and you had to go economy class regardless of where you came from. So Strauss was going up and back trying to complete the Tokyo round. He comes back from Paris and he comes back in the Air France uh, uh, UK model, the Concorde, and of course it's all first class. And the press got wind of this and they meet him at Dulles and stick a microphone in front of him and say, now Strauss, you know what the president's edict is, why are you flying first class? And he said, because there's nothing better than first class, and if there was, I would have flown that. <laughs> End of story. So a sense of humor can get you a long way. Carter did not have one. There weren't a lot of humorous things happening at this time either, by the way. Yes? Uh, thank you for your speech. It's really impressive. You mentioned uh, that in the time when you visit the U.S., Uh, I still remember the symbolic picture in Professor Vogel's book entitled And you also mentioned Deng uh, Xiaoping and Jimmy Carter discussed the MNs. I do now know quite a lot about that at that time. Could you please tell us more about that? So you're talking about China now? About the MNs. About? Uh, most favored nation. Yes, okay, so there, there was uh, and there still is uh, a most favored nation clause, meaning that we give our principal trading partners a very low tariffs. And so countries want to be part of that. During the Clinton administration, Jeff will mention, uh, will remember, we did CAFTA, we did a whole host of other uh, trade agreements to give them, in effect, most favored nation treatment. China wanted that but didn't get it because of the Jackson-Bannock Amendment, which restricted it from migration. Now, China wants to be treated as a developed country and wants the same rules in the World Trade Organization as other countries, and it's not being given to them. That's something that agitates them. Uh, I think ultimately they should and will get it, but they don't have it now. So they're still at a disadvantage, and now we have a remarkable situation of a huge standoff with tariffs. Uh, I don't know whether there'll be another round of $200 billion tariffs because Trump is getting so much pushback from it, but this is not the best way to negotiate with, uh, with China. Yes? Thank you so much for um, that talk, uh, Mr. Eisenhower. Um I have a question regarding um, Arab and Israeli relations. I agree with you that Carter did a great job with the Camp David Accords, um, and we haven't seen that kind of peacemaking in quite some time. So my question is, what are your thoughts on how the current administration okay. is dealing with Arab-Israeli relations? So, so let's, let's talk about that, but also go back. The big gap, first of all, Camp David was only an accord, a framework. Carter had to go back to the region against the advice of all of his advisors to make it into a binding treaty and almost was defeated. Uh, we, he he was, had his bags packed at the King David Hotel. Airspace had been cleared for Air Force One to leave. It looked like a failure that we were not going to be able to convert 
the Camp David Accords and Doe Treaty. Begin makes a last minute call to King David and Carter and Rosalind are dressing to get ready to leave. Carter calls down and tells us, entertain the Prime Minister while I get ready. And so Begin says to us, you know, this is a very historic hotel, the King David Hotel. I said, yeah, we know about that. He said, no, not for the reasons you think. I blew this hotel up when the British were in it. Don't worry, I'm not going to do it with the president here. Okay, so what was the big gap at Camp David and the treaty? It was the Palestinians. Now, what we were able to get Begin to agree to was full autonomy for the Palestinians and a settlement freeze. You'll see in the book there's huge disagreement about whether Begin agreed to a five-year settlement freeze or only a three-month settlement freeze, and I explain why in the book. This was a significant accomplishment. Saul Linowitz, who was nego had negotiated our Panama Canal Treaty, was the negotiator for autonomy. And I believe to this day, if Carter had been reelected, we would not see the situation we do today where there were then 15,000 settlers and the West Bank and there are now 350,000 settlers. So as we approach the 40th anniversary of Camp David, I would answer your question in this way. It's very important for a president to always support Israel. They are our principal ally. But as Carter did, and as Clinton tried to do in 2000 at the second Camp David, you've also got to lean on Israel as well for compromises, just as you lean on the Palestinians. And we have a situation now in which the Palestinians are hopelessly divided. Uh, no one is willing to come forward to make a peace. We've got the most conservative coalition in Israeli history uh, with uh, the Orthodox parties and the settlers, uh, and the prospects for peace are extremely dim. The administration now is saying after the election they're going to come up with a new plan, but to get a new plan you have to have trust on both sides. And when you shut down the Palestinian Authority's office in Washington, when you cut off their economic assistance, it's hard to build that trust. Now mind you, in both 2000 under Clinton and then 2008, first Prime Minister Barak, 2008 under Olmert, Israel offered 95% of the West Bank back East Jerusalem as a capital, 50,000 refugees coming back to Israel for family reunions, and it was turned down by Arafat and then by Abu Mazen. So, you know, the old saying of Abu Ibn, the Palestinians never lose an opportunity to lose an opportunity, is still there, but now we have two sides dramatically fall far apart, and for the administration to even begin to bridge it, it has to establish trust with both parties. And now that they've done so much for Israel, moving the embassy and so forth, it gives them the credibility, if they will use it, to say, okay, now is the time for both sides to make compromises. Only if the President of the United States is involved, is knowledgeable, is willing to commit time, can this happen. I'll leave it to your judgment as to whether that meets the criteria of our current President. Yes. I'd like to get back to a less contentious topic, American politics, uh, specifically the politics of the South, oh. 64, the Amer American Southern politics. Famously, Lyndon Johnson said in 64 when he signed the Civil Rights Act, there goes the Democratic Party in the South. In 76, Carter carried Mississippi, Alabama. Every state, every except, state uh, except Virginia. Virginia. 
That wasn't so in 80. Okay, so, yes, I will. So this is a really important question, and I'm going to give you a completely inadequate answer because I have asked everybody and his father for the reason. So let's go back before 76. Okay, Lyndon Johnson did make that hmm. statement. I'm going to sign away the South for a generation when I send a Civil Rights Act. Okay, so let's go to the early 70s when you had progressive Southern Democratic governors Carter in Georgia, people like Askew and Graham in Florida, Riley, who became Secretary of Education in South Carolina, Hunt in North Carolina, Winter in Mississippi, even Bill White in Texas. And they did it by getting 43, 44% of the white vote and 90% of the black vote. Now, a Democratic congressman, senator, or senator or governor trying to run statewide is lucky if he gets 30% of the white vote. Now, people say it's all race. Well, if it's all race, what was the question in the early 70s when we were closer to the civil rights revolution than we are today? The South is more integrated. It's into the country, into the economy, and yet it's a solid phalanx. There's only one statewide governor who won in North Carolina by a hair's breadth, it's a real dilemma. I think it's perhaps due to one or two things, and this is not a fully adequate answer. I think it's because Democrats have been associated with alternative lifestyles, gay marriage, you know, all of those sorts of issues which run against the grain. And I think the second reason is that many of the people who were so-called yellow dog Democrats, who voted for a Democrat regardless of who they were, because of the Civil War remembrance of Reconstruction under the Republicans have largely died off. The younger generation is not there. They react much more to, to more conservative issues. Uh, but it, it gives any Republican president running a tremendous head start in building a national coalition. Yes. Yes, I tried to do that when I talked about Volcker. So Carter gave a speech in March of 77, three months after he was inaugurated, saying inflation is a major problem, we have to deal with it. We had a Democratic Party that didn't want to hear that. The base of the party, labor, liberals, knew that if you tried to attack inflation, it meant constricting budgets, they wanted an expansionary budget, and we constantly had to tack between the demands of labor for protectionist uh, trade policy, for increases in minimum wage, and Carter's own instincts. So we got progressively tougher on inflation. Ultimately, again, I, I wanted wage and price controls, like Nixon put on, and frankly, just for political reasons, I knew all the problems that Nixon had in suppressing. I just wanted to get through the election. Charlie Schultz and others said, no, we went through that with Nixon, so we did guidelines. We had a pay advisory board. We had sanctions for any large company. They had to sign on to those if they wanted a government contract. We cut budgets. But I think our biggest failure was not understanding the importance of monetary policy. We ran an expansionary monetary policy when Bill Miller was there. And the amazing thing with Reagan is, look at Reagan's deficits. They dwarf ours. 
they were two, three times larger. He had an expansionary fiscal policy, much more than we did, but he had Paul Volcker in the monetary chair. And when you have a Fed that's willing to establish that credibility, you can do a lot. So we made a mistake. We, uh, we appointed Miller, who had no pre previous experience, instead of Bill Burns, who, who, by the way, was no dream either. Reagan had got him to goose the economy before the 74 uh, elections, so the 72 elections. So uh, I think it was largely a failure to understand the importance of monetary policy. Finally, Carter did. And that's why I appointed Volcker. And it just didn't occur early enough. And on domestic policy, I've given you chapter and verse of all the really remarkable things we, we did. John? So maybe I'll use this as a prerogative for the last question, because we want to make sure Stu can, can catch his plane. Um, you've, it's pretty clear in my mind your perspective on the current presidency, so I'm not asking <coughs> you to comment on that. But could you comment on the current Congress? what you think their role is in addressing some of the questions and issues that are bubbling up. So one of the reasons that I stressed how on energy, on Panama, and so many other issues we had more bipartisan support is to demonstrate the absence of that today. What's happened through a variety of things, gerrymandering and so forth, I mean I was interviewed by The Economist, I don't know, 10 years ago, and I was asked what I thought the prime problem with American democracy was, and I said it's the collapse of the center. So now you have a Congress and a country that's sharply polarized. The Freedom Caucus on the right won't uh, allow any compromise. The liberals on the left have great difficulty doing it. And so we're really trapped if a democracy, and particularly with our divided system, can't come to compromises in the center, we can't function. Congress can't function, and it can't function, and it doesn't function for that reason. I mean, the last opportunity, and maybe Jeff can shed more light on it than I can, is when Speaker Boehner, the Republican chairman, uh, Speaker of the House, and Obama were very close to a long-term budget deal. They were within a couple of hundred uh, billion dollars of it uh, over a 10-year period. And a lot of fingers have been pointed about who was responsible, but I think the absence of that ended up losing Boehner his job and further polarizing the country. And now we've got news media. We listen to the news media that we like. Uh, we talk to only friends that we like. We're not willing to listen to the other side. And this is extremely unhealthy for uh, democracy, and you can see it every day in the Congress. Now, the, the eight, 2018 elections are critically important because if Democrats take over the House, I don't think there'll be an impeachment, but you'll begin to see more probity on what's happening uh, because Democrats will control the gavel, and that will be very, very crucial. But still, trying to get back to the center where Carter was, where Clinton was, is tremendously important, and getting there is very difficult because... You look at the candidates running in 2020. I mean, we don't know who they'll be. But what we do know is that it's the base, the liberal base, that will be decisive in the early primaries. And so a centrist may have great, he could win or she win the election. But getting the nomination will be very difficult. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Eisenhower, for the very insightful. I just want to ask, you mentioned the Iran 
as maybe President Carter's biggest uh, foreign policy failure and talked about the intelligence community's failure compared to the weapons of mass destruction. And wouldn't you argue that their failure, the intelligence community's failure was to, if you go back, to, to the overthrow the democratically elected government of Iran then and install a monarchy, a puppet regime, which the U.S. continues that regime, regime change policy still now. It's not very successful. Well, that, certainly that was part of the problem. But part of the problem is, why did the CIA have such an utter failure? And part of that reason is that the Shah said, the only intelligence I will allow in Iran when the CIA is looking externally at the Soviet Union, not internally, I'm going to rely on SAVAK, my own intelligence service, which was quite brutal, to give me all the information I, I needed. So we deferred when we shouldn't have. There was also a sharp division. Our ambassador at the time, Sullivan, wrote a cable called Thinking the Unthinkable early on, saying we should embrace the Ayatollah and ditch the Shah. Uh, Carter wanted him fired. So we had a lot of dissonance in the, our policy. Uh, the Shah didn't get the clearest signals. But in the end, in the end, and I got this from interviewing his own amb last ambassador, Zahidi. Zahidi said the only way you can stay in power is to shoot at the demonstrators. It's the only way. And the Shah, for all of his fallibilities, said a monarch can't end up reigning if he has to kill his people. And he wouldn't pull the trigger. And when he left, the army melted away. We tried to support them through the last prime minister the Shah named, Bakhtir, but they simply collapsed because they relied so much on the Shah's support. Yes. Okay, so there, there were, we'll make this the last question. There were two, two incidents that I write about in the book. One, we lost the election overwhelmingly, but going into the debate with Reagan eight days before, we were ahead. Reagan won the debate overwhelmingly. He was a great debater, but he had an advantage, which I demonstrate in the book. They stole our debate book. There were congressional hearings about this. Jim Baker, who was his campaign manager, who I interviewed, admitted it. Uh, they knew exactly what we were going to say in the attack, and that didn't hurt Reagan's chances. Second was on Iran. Why did Khomeini wait till the minute Reagan was sworn in to release the hostages? Why not do it beforehand, particularly when the Iran-Iraq war occurred? And here there's conjecture, and I want to make it clear it's only conjecture. Gary Sick, our NSC Iran expert, wrote a book on it. There were congressional hearings. Nothing's been conclusively shown. But you have the following situations. Uh, the chairman of Reagan's campaign went to Mexico during the campaign, and George H.W. Bush, his vice presidential nominee, went to Paris in the middle of the campaign. Did he meet with Iranians? We don't know. But what we do know is the Iran-Contra happened when the U.S. under Reagan passed very sophisticated arms to Iran. Uh, had we done that, could we have gotten them released? Perhaps. Uh, for, the, for Khomeini, Carter, who ironically would have been much better for Iran in terms of future relations than Reagan, was the uh, embodiment of all the presidents he hated. And he simply wasn't going to reward them. But again, whether there was any uh, sort of hanky-panky, there were 
some storm clouds about it. It's never been proven. Uh, there's inconclusive uh, material about it. Thank you very right. much. And I <laughs>